Uh, a very common icebreaker, at least at dinner parties that I go to, is something like this. Name your top five movies. And if you're weird like me, you keep a list. But even if you don't have a list and you, you know, are just thinking on the fly, I would imagine many of us have on there a movie with a big plot twist at the end. A movie where we think for like 97% of the movie, we're seeing something one way. We're very confident. Here's what's happening. And then something happens, a turn happens in the movie that makes us realize everything that we believed up to this point was wrong. Whether it's, you know, the usual suspects, Kevin Spacey is a criminal, massive spoiler alert for the next 20 seconds, by the way. You've had like 10 years to see all these, I think. Uh, Fight Club, Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, the same person. Now we're not supposed to talk about Fight Club, but for the sake of my analogy. Shutter Island, right? Leonardo DiCaprio is not a U.S. Marshal investigating this insane asylum. He's actually a patient there. And then two, the perhaps two most famous, I am your father. Darth Vader is not this great dark lord enemy. He's Luke's father, who's the great dark lord enemy. And the most famous, anyone want to uh, venture a guess? It's always risky when I ask for crowd participation. No. Okay. Uh, it's the last time I'll ever ask for your participation. Right? Groundhog Day and Fast and Furious. Okay. Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. Right? The sixth sense. I'm done asking, Carl. Uh, no, he doesn't die and die hard. I haven't seen the ninth one, so maybe he does, but... Uh, Bruce Willis is dead, right? All of these movies, what do they have in common? We are very confident watching. Here's what's going on. And then something happens and we realize we were blind this whole time. And you can never unsee it. All of a sudden, something, this twist happens that breaks out ultimate reality. Breaks out what's really real. And we actually begin to see for the first time. And Matthew today, as we look at this story, this very famous story about Jesus encountering two women, it's kind of two stories, one embedded inside another, we're going to see this plot twist. We're going to see how are we to see true reality, and Matthew's going to show us how are we as Christians, the people following this Savior, how are we meant to live, and the answer is we are meant to live by the eyes of faith. The way we see ultimate reality isn't by looking with these eyes. It's by looking with the eyes of faith. So we'll look at three things as we walk through this passage together. We'll see an expectant faith, a lived faith, and lastly, we'll see the reality of faith. So look at verse 18. Let's dive into this passage together. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So just to remind you of kind of where we've been, notice Matthew is still, or sorry, Jesus is still eating at Matthew's house. Several weeks ago, we, we saw Jesus calling Matthew, the tax collector, to be his disciple, and then he went to a dinner party at Matthew's house, and many tax collectors and sinners came and joined him, and he hasn't left that scene. And as they're eating together, we've seen several groups of people come through. We saw the Pharisees come through and say, why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he eating with the filthy? 
Doesn't he know he's a rabbi? He's above them. And we see Jesus interact with them. Last week with Carl, we saw the disciples of John. The disciples of John come in and ask, why aren't you guys fasting? And Jesus interacting with them. And now, notice here, we have a third someone who comes in. The ruler comes in while Jesus is saying these things to John's disciples. Almost like this ruler is interrupting the previous conversation that we were seeing with John's disciples and Jesus. So he's sitting at the table and behold, okay, remember, every time you see that word, that's Matthew screaming at you. Matthew, the author of this book, screaming at you, look. He's saying these things and look, a ruler comes in. So who, who is this guy? Uh, Mark and Luke, the Gospels of Mark and Luke, both give us this exact story. In fact, give us far more detail. Matthew's very uh, selective because he's focusing us on faith. We'll see that in just a second. But we see from those other accounts, Luke 8, things like that, that this ruler uh, is the ruler of the synagogue. It's actually, we get his name in Luke, his man named Jairus. So the synagogue, you, you have the temple in Jerusalem, the center of worship for all Judaism, and then you have little synagogues kind of sprinkled throughout, like many temples throughout. So this man, Jairus, the ruler, is over uh, the synagogue. He kind of runs the place, which means he would have had considerable influence. He would have been a very important person. And so when he enters the story, if you know who he is, you would expect this interaction to be very much like the interaction with the Pharisees the interaction with the other religious rulers who walked by and said, what are you doing with these sinners? But we see this ruler come in and his posture is completely different. He comes in and he kneels before Jesus. And he says in verse 18, as he humbly kneels before Jesus, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live so we see, sorry, gosh. <clears throat> so we see he's not just a ruler, he's a father. And so all of a sudden, you, you should begin to, to feel the pain and the grief that is flooding into this dad's heart as he's kneeling before Jesus. This is not a casual request. This is the most important thing in this man's life, that he's coming and laying before Jesus. This is not the centurion saying, hey, one of my servants has died. Will you come heal him? This is a dad saying, my little girl has just died. Come, lay your hand on her, and she will be healed. So we see he's a ruler, we see he's a father, and here we see he's a desperate father. The Greek for he, uh, or my daughter has just died, it, it's this instance of, or this idea of she has died now. It just happened. Matthew's giving us this picture of he's, he's just left her bedside. He's just watched her body go cold. And the people around him are beginning to mourn her death. And he hears the healers in town. He hears there's a dinner party where Jesus is. And he leaves the, the mourning funeral that we'll see at the end of this passage. And he goes and he desperately kneels before Jesus, and notice, this would have done horrible things to his reputation. This is the ruler of the synagogue. Supplicating yourself before Jesus would not have uh, boosted his reputation with the other religious leaders who are calling him a blasphemer, who later in this chapter will say it's by the power of demons that he casts out demons, but this dad does not care. He is desperate 
my little girl has just died. Maybe if I can get to him, maybe if he comes, then she will live again. And then we see one more thing. We see he's a father. We see he's a desperate father. And then we see by his statement, he is an expectant father. Notice this isn't some sort of uh, question he doesn't know the answer to. This isn't some crossing his fingers. Maybe, maybe it will happen. I've tried everything else. Maybe I'll try this Jesus guy. He states it as a matter of fact. Come, and my girl will live. If you come, my daughter who has just died, her death will be undone. It's not even a question. It's a statement. Somehow this ruler is incredibly confident. Somehow he seems to know who Jesus is, and what Jesus can do. And he is very expectant of what Jesus will do if he comes with him. And here, Matthew is introducing the main idea of this passage, which is faith in Jesus. Confidence in who he is and what he can do. This father seems to have confident faith in Jesus, keep in mind, Jesus has not raised anyone from the dead yet. We've seen him heal the sick. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him calm the storm. But death, the curse that's been on the world since Genesis 3, death is undefeated. No one has undone death, including Jesus up to this point. It would be the greatest display of power he has shown thus far. And he hasn't done it yet, so this ruler can't say, oh, like last time, will you do it with my little girl? But he goes to him confidently anyway. And then in verse 19, we see Jesus' response. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. There's no rebuke like with the Pharisees. There's no conversation like with John's disciples. Jesus simply rises and goes with the ruler. And again here, as Matthew is introducing this idea of faith in Jesus, Matthew's also introducing Jesus' response to faith in Jesus, which is compassionate salvation. And we will see these two themes play out the rest of the passage. So we see this is just setting up the story for us, a, a desperate father going to Jesus, Jesus hearing the faith-filled cries of this broken father and Jesus responding, going. He's going with him. So Jesus gets up, leaves the dinner party with all the tax collectors and sinners and the disciples go with him. That's almost certainly a reference of uh, witnesses to this story, to this event. The disciples are gonna go with him as witnesses and then we get another behold. So they're on their way. Again, this isn't just a nice stroll to this house. Imagine the angst. Oh, he's coming. Okay, let's go. I live right this way. So they're on their way, and we get another interruption and another behold. Another thing Matthew wants us to look at, verse 20, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up. Okay, so they're on their way, and we have this second interruption. I imagine a very unwelcome one by the ruler, a woman who's by her very nature, being a woman would have already been on the fringes of society, especially compared to this ruler. Second thing we see, she's suffered from this disease, this discharge of blood, which would have made her unclean. Leviticus 
15, 25, uh, if a woman, this is in the Old Testament law, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstruational impurity, if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Now, uh, show of hands, how many have that as the verse that's on your wall? John 3.16, Leviticus 15.25, toss up. Uh, Okay, so we see uh, this isn't just a physically debilitating disease. She's unclean, which means she's cut off from all social life. She's cut off from all civil life. She's cut off from all religious life. She can't go to worship with her people, and she's cut off almost certainly from all Family life, this is misery, and it's misery for 12 years. 12 years, I actually broke it down, that's 141 months of this misery, 625 weeks of no family and no friends and no one to comfort you in your misery, 4,380 Days of a type of misery that I don't know if we could take. The loneliness and the being ostracized from society, of going into the streets and people turning away from you because you're unclean. You're going to make their life worse if you get too close. And almost certainly she's just continually covered just in shame. People are disgusted when you walk by. In fact, Mark and Luke tell us that she had spent this 12 years trying to find a cure, and the only result of all of her efforts is poverty. She spends every dime that she has to get out of this misery, and she can't. She would, you would imagine she would think, this is an incurable disease. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck like this. Nothing is ever going to change my situation. And then one day, she's walking and sees Jesus walking by at a brisk pace with this synagogue ruler and his disciples and almost certainly a crowd walking with them. And Matthew actually tells us what begins to swirl through her mind as she sees him. Verse 21, she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. If I can just get to him and just touch the fringes of his garment, maybe my misery will be healed. All, this thing, all these things that have been plaguing me day after day after day after day for 12 years, maybe it will go away. It will finally be healed. In fact, the Greek here is that she kept saying it to herself, this idea of just it's, it's what's swirling around her mind over and over and over again, almost as if she needs to kind of gear herself up for something. What does she need to gear herself up for? Again, think about it. There's a rabbi walking by, and she's unclean. Rabbis don't associate with the unclean. Will this rabbi? She doesn't know. There's also a ruler of the synagogue. He certainly doesn't associate with the unclean. There's also a sea of people she would need to get through in order to get healing. No one wants her around, but notice, like the ruler, she's Desperate. If I can just get to him, if I can just touch the fringes of his garment, maybe 
I'll be healed. And so she goes. This woman came up behind, look at her trying to be sneaky, came up behind and touched the fringes of his garment. This idea of she's trying to kind of get her healing and get out of there before people notice and say, what are you doing? You're unclean. Don't you know the thousands of social laws that you're breaking? You're going to make all of us unclean. You're going to make this rabbi unclean. You're going to threaten this ruler who's on his way to go have his daughter raised from the dead. You're going to ruin all of this by your recklessness. But she's desperate to get to him. So she goes and she touches him. And then in verse 22, we see Jesus' response to this desperate act of faith. Verse 22 Jesus turned and saw her, turned and seeing her. So imagine the picture here. They're walking at a brisk pace, and Jesus stops. And I imagine the rest of the crowd stops with him, and he turns and he lays his eyes on her. The last thing in the world this woman wants is eyes on her. And now the eyes that have made all other eyes are fixed on her. What is he going to say? She's caught. What is he going to do? Is he going to rebuke her as you imagine every other rabbi would do? You just ruined this whole situation. What does he say? He says, verse 22, take heart, daughter. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are words of encouragement, probably the first kind words this woman has heard in over a decade. Notice, don't brush by this, Jesus is taking time before he heals her to speak kindly to her. Before he fixes her ailment, he is encouraging her. Before healing her, he is raising her up. He is not a healing robot. That's kind of how she's treating him. I'll just get my healing and run out of here. He is a gentle and tender savior. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. Before he heals her, he takes time to make sure she locks eyes with him, and he says, take heart, daughter. That's the first thing he does. And then we see in verse 22, he actually does heal her. After encouraging her, he heals her. Verse 22, and instantly the woman was made well. So all this pain and all of her sickness, all the, thought, all the things she thought were unhealable is healed. We see Jesus, he, he can heal the unhealable. This Pain that we went to every other possible source, all for naught. We come to the one who can actually heal. An incredible display of his power. An incredible display of his power. Now, we're going to talk about faith. You'll notice if you're following carefully, I'm jumping over this middle part. We're going to get to that in just a second. But again, I want you to just notice the absolute tenderness of your infinitely powerful God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is infinitely powerful. He has calmed the storm. The hurricanes shut their mouths because he tells them to. 
Demons pee their pants when he walks into the room. He casts out every sickness. He is infinitely powerful, and we will see at the end of this, spoiler alert, he does have power over death. He tells death, let go, and it does. He is the God of the universe. The galaxies scream his infinite worth because he is holding them together. And yet, this infinitely powerful king of the universe, Jesus, kneels down, holds this rejected, unwanted woman's gaze and comforts her and speaks tenderly to her. Don't miss who your Savior is. This same heart beats in his chest in heaven right now for you. Don't blow by who your infinitely powerful Savior is. So he speaks tenderly to her. He heals her, and then he says this. Here we're getting to the main point. So she touches him. He turns. He looks. He comforts her. And then he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. So first of all, every commentator that I've come across has said this. What, what Matthew is getting at here, what Jesus is hinting at here when he says well, this word is actually uh, the word that's most commonly used for salvation, it's the same word that the angel who came to Joseph in Matthew 1 at Jesus' birth, uh, you will have a son, you'll name him Jesus, and he will save, make well his people from their sin. And so most think Jesus here is actually hinting at this, this idea that this physical healing, daughter, that you've just experienced is just a part of the healing that I bring. There's actually a greater healing that I will bring to you. It's as if Jesus is hinting at, yes, I'm fixing your temporal problem, but I also will fix your eternal one. Matthew here highlighting this idea kind of for us. When you encounter Jesus, you don't just get your problems fixed. You get your eternal problems fixed. He's a healing for every ailment that there is. There is nothing in your life that he won't make well. That's the first thing. Second thing is this main idea of faith. Matthew centering us. Her faith has made her well. Okay, so we need to spend a lot of time here, uh, some time, a lot of time you're like, you usually go long anyway. So don't worry, it'll be around the same time. Uh, one of the most, I think, misunderstood things in our kind of spheres of Christianity and evangelicalism is the idea of faith and how faith works. Uh, one of the reasons why you need to know church history is because there are movements that happened hundreds of years ago that affect how you see theology and how you read the Bible without you knowing it. Someone taught our great-grandparents a bunch of dumb stuff, and then it trickled down to us, and we don't know it, okay? And so one of the things that happened 100-ish years ago that massively affects how we view faith is something called the Word of Faith Movement. Uh, that gave birth to a lot of bad things like the prosperity gospel and things like that. But it's this idea that if you have enough faith, if you can have enough, almost this picture of like a bucket and it, you know, there's a meter inside, if, it's, if your bucket of faith is filled enough, then you can have healing, you can have prosperity, and you, know, you can even have salvation. Okay, so even though I would imagine most in this room would readily reject the prosperity gospel, we have unknowingly, a lot of us, absorbed 
this kind of false idea of faith. So God will answer your prayers if you believe hard enough, if you have enough faith, right? Or even salvation. How many of us, when we ask, how are you doing? If you're discouraged, say, you know, I just feel like I'm going to lose my faith or I just, I'm not believing enough. I don't even know if I'm a Christian because I just, I don't feel God close. We're constantly talking about faith like it's this bucket meter, right, that we have to fill up. That is all from this movement called the Word of Faith movement. If I can just muster enough faith, then maybe I'll be saved. Or maybe God will actually hear me if I pray the right way or if I yell at him loud enough or if I'm good enough or if I believe hard enough, things like that. So that view would would look at Jesus' words here and see Jesus as saying to this woman, you have had enough faith, you have enough, your bucket is full enough, so you're healed. You see that? It kind of looks like the most plain reading. Jesus is saying, yeah, you had a ton of faith, therefore you are healed. Healed. Now, notice the problem there. What is that view of faith doing? Where's the focus? In that false view, the focus of faith is not in Jesus. It's in your faith. That is putting faith in your faith, faith in yourself. Ironically, it puts the focus of your faith in the exact wrong place. My works, my efforts, how much faith can I have? Your eyes are anywhere but on him. It's focused on how much faith you can have. And Alan Chappell, who uh, is an uh, Australian professor, wrote an excellent book called True Devotion. And he says, you know, the, the downfall of putting your faith in faith, there's, there's two main downfalls that we have when we're just focused on ourselves. Number one, you'll be way too confident. You'll be like Peter saying he won't deny Jesus. No, if they all leave you, I won't. Even if I have to die, you know, I'm, I'm never going to deny you. Right? He's very, very confident in the amount of faith he can have. And if you know the story, you know how that goes. Or what I think is the far more common downfall is you'll be constantly discouraged about how little faith that you have. You'll never have enough. You'll always be trying to fill your bucket more. Your eyes will continue to be on yourself, and it will be this vicious cycle. As you look to your lack of faith, you'll be discouraged and have less faith. Now, that puts the focus in the exact wrong place. Let me give you an example that hopefully will illustrate this point. Uh, I, like normal people, have a lot of fears, okay? Spicy food, grasshoppers, normal stuff. Uh, And I used to have, uh, one of my biggest fears that I've actually overcome, used to be flying in a plane over water. Uh, I saw Castaway way too young, (laughs) terrified me, Uh, and so, uh, years ago, if you, if you know kind of my story, I, I spent several years in Australia. And if you know anything about a globe, there's a fair amount of water between Texas and Australia. And so the first time I was going to go, I was just terrified. I was thinking, you know, most likely I'm going to die. That, that is the most probable thing. We're going to die uh, in the ocean, forgotten, except the black box that they'll find in 20 years. But, you know, I was like, I guess there's a sliver of a chance that will live, uh, and you know, my future wife is in Australia, so I gotta get on the plane and go, and so I get on the plane, and Qantas Airlines, they're great, okay? They've got every movie you can imagine, Sixth Sense, Unusual Suspects, it's where I watch most of these movies, right? It's just, it's great, they've got great blankets, you know, all the Aussie, you know, stewardesses, they're great, right? But was I having a good time? No, I'm terrified, the whole time, 
the whole 19,000 hour plane ride, I'm terrified, right? We're gonna die. Every bit of turbulence is, is death, right? I'm looking for a volleyball to be my best friend for the next several years. And I'm just positive. Now, here's the key question for us. Did I have enough faith to get us to Australia? Did I have enough? Was my bucket full enough to get us to Australia? And here's the answer. That is a stupid question. Because what matters isn't my amount of faith. What matters is the plane. Is the plane good? It doesn't matter how much I'm freaking out if I'm inside a good plane and we landed safely. And one day I realized this and, you know, I went to Australia several times, okay? So notice it doesn't matter the amount of faith that you have as long as you get on the plane. The plane is what matters. Jesus is not saying to this woman, wow, your bucket was full, therefore you were healed. He was saying, you got on the plane. You came here to the healer, and that's an incredible act of faith. And therefore, you have received your healing. You got on the plane. Okay, so take that false understanding, take word of faith movement, crumple it, trash can, light it on fire, right? Never think of that again. Biblical faith, if I can just clearly define it, is this, believing Jesus is who he says he is, believing that his words are true, and living as if all this was true. Believing and acting, or if you would like, looking and living. Looking to him, believing everything he says about himself, and living as if that's ultimate reality. Living as if that were true. Notice the father here. You will wake up my daughter. He's looking to Jesus, he's seeing the healing, and he's going to him and saying, I'm believing this. He's walking to him saying, let's go. Notice the woman here. There's healing in him. And so I'm living, I'm walking to him knowing that he will heal me. Looking and living. Notice the focus is square on his face. You are who you say you are. You're the healer. And I'm going to come to you. Looking and living. What do you think the Bible constantly is talking about how a weak faith can do incredible things? Because your amount doesn't matter as long as you get on the plane. Thomas Watson, the great uh, Puritan, said this, A weak faith can lay hold of a strong Savior. A weak faith can lay hold of a strong Savior. So the first question you need to ask yourself is, where is my faith aimed? Or if you like what we say almost every sermon, where are your eyes are they here or are they on him? Where are you looking? And I have to answer the first question as I'm looking to him. The second question is, are you living as if he is who he says he is and everything that he says about himself is true? Are you, like this ruler and like this woman, walking to him, going to him, living as if what he says is ultimate reality? And the best way... You can tell, third question, is to ask yourself, am I desperate like these two in this story? Am I desperate for him? Am I desperate to get to him? If you examine a day in your life, does it scream, I must have him? 
I have no good apart from him. I have a disease that is far worse, a sin disease that is far worse than the woman in this story. And if I don't have him, I don't have healing. I must have him. I've got no life outside of him. Does your life scream that? And if not, you might be looking somewhere else and you might be living for someone else. Are you desperate to get to him like this ruler and like this woman who are displaying their faith by looking to him and living as if he is who he says he is? Let me just encourage you. There's no other healing. You can't get true joy anywhere else. There's no one else who can heal every ailment in your life. Get your eyes up. Look to him and live a life of faith in him. That's what this woman does. She's healed and the interruption is over. Now the journey is resuming to the ruler's house and we see as we get towards verse 23, they get there. Now remember, we just saw this incredible thing with this woman. She's healed and it's incredible, but this father, this ruler is no less anxious. My little girl is still on that bed, not alive. That's great for this woman, but my angst still exists. Come on, keep coming to my home. And when they get there, we see, verse 23, they're mid-funeral, quite literally. They stumble on the funeral, verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players, and the crowd making, he saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. So a little bit of background. Uh, funerals in Jesus' day are kind of the opposite of ours. Very quiet, very respectful. We whisper a lot, a lot of hugs. Uh, you would quite literally hire flute players. Uh, the Mishnah, the religious text of Judaism, requires even a poor person to hire one flute player and two mourners. And this ruler is not a poor person, so he would have had a lot. Notice there's a great commotion happening, but you would hire professional mourners. It was kind of this idea of people would start the wailing, people would start the crying out, and the family would join in. So this is what they're stumbling upon, this very loud funeral with a lot of mourners. And Jesus says in verse 24, go away, so he's interrupting now, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So Jesus comes up, he sees, and he says, you know, go away. She's not dead. She's, she's sleeping, which, let's be honest, is a weird thing to say. Because we know she is actually dead. She just died, verse, 20, or verse 18. So either Jesus is lying, and our faith is futile, right? Everything un unravels. Uh, or he's giving a different diagnosis, and therefore, verse 18 was lying, and the Bible's not sufficient, or something else is happening. Something else is happening, and it's exactly what is happening. Matthew here is drawing us in to the main idea of the story and saying, there's about to be a big twist. Everything we thought we were seeing is about to change. It's as if Jesus is saying, the resurrection and the life is here, and where I go, death flees. You don't need to mourn. I'm about to wake her up. That's what Jesus is saying. And what's the response to the, uh, of the mourners? 
they laugh at him, which is a, a difficult word to translate in English. Literally, it means they laughed him down. They, they're mocking him. They're, they're ridiculing him. And notice, in a way, they're, they're mocking the father. They're mocking the ruler. You brought this guy who clearly can't tell what death is. So they mock Jesus and mock all those who are with Jesus. Right? They're laughing at him when he declares, she's not dead, she's about to wake up. So hold that thought, because again, we're about to see this twist. Jesus is bringing us in to ultimate reality. But hold on to this idea. The mourners think they're seeing rightly, and they don't. They think Bruce Willis is alive. Right? Hold that thought. Jesus puts the mockers outside. They don't get to witness what's next. They're gone. He puts them out. Verse 25. But when the crowd has been, had been put outside, this noisy crowd had been put outside, he, Jesus, went in and took her by the hand. This daughter took her by the hand, and the girl arose. See how Matthew is slowing down the narrative. Jesus puts them out. Jesus goes in, and he takes this little girl's hand, and just that, she raises from the dead. So first of all, see, this is the greatest power we've seen Jesus display thus far. Again, death is undefeated. It's the curse of Genesis 3 after the fall. Their death has literally, no pun intended, had a death grip on everyone. And Jesus here says, let go. And it does. Who is this man who the winds and the waves listen to, who the demons flee before, and who death flees? Before He heals every sickness, he forgives sins, and now he raises the dead. This is the greatest display of power we've seen thus far, and see again how he displays this unthinkably great power by taking this little girl's hand. With such gentleness and such compassion, he shows, I am the most powerful one in all of creation with such a display of gentleness. And then we see right here, the ruler, the father, who in verse 19 had said in faith, come lay your hand on my daughter and she will live. His faith right here is turned to sight. He gets to see the plot twist. He gets to see ultimate reality, what happens when Jesus walks into the room. And as he lives in ultimate reality, all of his mourning is turned to dancing. And a report goes throughout the whole region. Someone who can undo death is here. And that's where the story ends. And so what Matthew is showing us here, he's, remember, he showed us thus far, biblical faith is looking and living. That's what we've seen thus far. And here, he's showing us a sharp, sharp contrast between the blindness of the mocking mourners who don't have faith in Jesus and the sight of the ruler who has faith in Jesus. Here's the problem with the mocking mourners. They see with the wrong eyes. Think about this. Jesus comes in and says, she's not dead. She's sleeping. And they are like, what do you, I, I've, I've seen her body. It's cold. There's no pulse. I've seen with my eyes 
She is dead, right? They've, they're seeing what they think is real. They're very confident, like us watching Sixth Sense or Star Wars 1, right? We're very confident. I know what's happening. I've seen it with my own eyes, but because they don't have the eyes of faith, because they don't have faith in Jesus, they're actually blind. And they're highlighting something we see over and over and over and over again from the scriptures. Those who don't have faith in him, they're blind though they see. They've got eyes, but they don't see. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person, the faithless person, does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them. He's not able to see them because they are spiritually discerned. Right? Those who have eyes, right? these eyes, but they don't have these eyes. They're not going to understand the things of God. They're not going to understand what's really real. Though they have eyes, they don't see. And because the mourners don't have faith in Jesus, they don't see reality. They're still bragging about what a great counselor Bruce Willis is, or whatever he was. I haven't seen the movie in a long time. He's alive, right? They think he's alive when the ultimate reality is dead, and they miss that little girl does wake up just like Jesus said she would. It was as if she was sleeping. So they're blind, but the ruler, he's not seeing with these eyes. He's seeing with these eyes, and therefore he's seeing rightly, right? He actually sees what is there, and as a result of his faith in Jesus, having his eyes open, his little girl runs back into his arms. You see that difference. Matthew is sharply showing us, you don't have the eyes of faith in Jesus Christ, you will be blind, though you will be very confident that you see rightly, like these mocking mourners. But if like the ruler and like this bleeding woman, you have the eyes of faith, your eyes are up and fixed on him, you will see. You will actually see. And this is something that's going to be repeated over and over and over again all throughout the scriptures. The scriptures are going to tell you what is ultimately true of you if you're a Christian isn't what you can see with these eyes. Let me give you an example. Colossians 3, 3 through 4. For you have died, talking to Christians, for you have, past tense, died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. Think about that. We read that and we think, cool, awesome Bible verse. Wait, hang on, I'm not dead. I, there's a pulse right here. I'm not a, you know, a, a phantom or whatever. I'm, I'm actually alive, right, with these eyes. But Colossians 3 is saying, no, 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 that's not what's ultimately most true about you. The most true thing about you is there was a Jared that existed one day, and he lived for himself, and then one day he met Jesus, and that Jared died. And my ultimate life isn't here. I'll go on the ground one day. People will mourn at my funeral, but my life will not end because my ultimate life is hidden with Christ right now in God. Could there be anything more glorious? And when he appears, I will appear with him. I can't see that with these eyes. I can see that with these eyes. What does Paul say about himself? What's ultimately true about Paul, the Apostle Paul, Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ. 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Why does the Bible over and over and over again tell you, walk by faith, not by sight? Faith, have Christians, have the faith that is the assurance of things that you hope for and the confidence of the things you can't see. Constantly, the Bible telling you, don't see with these eyes, see with these eyes. The same thing Matthew is showing us here. The mockers, though they have eyes and they think they see, what's the consequences of their blindness, of their lack of faith in Jesus? They miss the one who could undo their death. They mock the God of the universe. They miss the one who could heal their every ailment because they don't have faith in Jesus. And what's the Father's reward? He gets to see ultimate reality and all of his pain is taken away. And what replaces it is infinite joy. So as we close, have the eyes of faith. Don't walk by sight. Walk with the eyes of faith. Don't be conformed to the sight of this world. It's blind. Be transformed by the eyes of faith. Renew your mind to what is ultimately real, what Jesus says he can do and who he says he is. Live lives of faith that invites the mocking scorn of the blind world. A life of faith will invite this sort of scorn Why do you live, why do you pour out your life so much for others? Why don't you live for yourself like we're supposed to, right? YOLO, we've only got one life to live. Why are you doing this? Why are you constantly laying down your life for others? A life of faith says, because I have someone who laid down his life for me. And he taught me it's better to give than to receive. And he taught me to consider others better than myself. And he taught me I don't just have one life. In fact, this life is a vapor and it will quickly be gone. Why do you give? Why why do you spend your money in such a ridiculous way? Why don't you spend it on yourself? You worked hard for it so that you can have a good life in the American dream because I have a Savior who taught me to store up treasures in heaven. I'm not looking to this kingdom. I'm looking to a kingdom that is to come. Does your life invite the mocking scorn of the blind world? It should. Why do you have hope in the midst of incredible suffering? Why don't you just wallow in pain and play the victim like everybody else? Why do you keep having hope in the midst of an incredibly painful existence? Because I know someone gave his life for me so that I can have resurrection at the end of days to my true life. And I will see my glorious Savior who will look at me and say, I make all things new. That's the eyes of faith. You see that difference. And as we close... Let me just close with a word to the hurting. It's difficult to ignore the unthinkable pain of these two characters. It's almost as if we were covering a broad spectrum of the type of suffering we can endure in the world. And we see both these characters, not characters, people, rulers, this ruler and the woman, their faith in Jesus results in their deepest pain and their deepest suffering being healed And for you, if you're a Christian, the promise that we look to and grab hold of by faith is, though it might not be in this life, 
all of your deepest pains will also be healed. Everything sad we made untrue. The same ears who hears the desperate cries of this ruler, of this father, hears your cries. The same eyes that fix on the diseased, unwanted woman will be fixed on you in the same hands that took the hand of this little girl will wipe the tears away from your face and you will hear the glorious words, take heart, daughter, take heart, my son, your faith in me has made you well. Let's pray to that God who hears us. Father, I feel like when we study your word, it's so unthinkable. How could all these incredible things be true, and yet you scream at us that they are? How could we have a God who we've sinned so much against? And this is your constant response of sending your son, who is such a glorious son, such a wonderful savior, so gentle and lowly and so tender to the most broken, even though he's infinitely powerful and holds together every molecule in the universe, he stoops down and comforts the broken. When all we've done is rebel against you, what kind of a God is that? One who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and so we praise you. Uh, and just ask, Lord, with all of our might, that you would send your spirit to lift the eyes of our hearts, like Paul prays in Ephesians 1, that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened to know the infinite glorious inheritance that we have in your Son, and that as a result we would live lives that are otherworldly, that are, can't be understood by the blind world because of the joy that we have in knowing that we will see your face and that you brought us in and that the same Jesus who calls this woman daughter brings us to you, Father, so that you can call us daughter and you can call us son as adopted sons. Who is there that is like you, Lord? We love you and we praise you and we pray that we would Always behold your glory and be changed as a result. We pray knowing that you can do that in your son's glorious name. Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.